This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Lorena Gorbett is an elder of the Mountain Maidu Native American tribe here in Northern California. She works with the Maidu Cultural Development Group and is a founding member and leading voice of the Maidu Summit Consortium an endeavor in interior Northern California to return traditional lands to the care of their traditional peoples. Cultivating Place is produced from a base on ancestral and present homelands of the valley portions of the Machupta Maidu, and I am so grateful to be in conversation with Lorena about land back under the care of the Maidu people and their traditional ecological knowledge of this place. I am so honored to welcome you, Lorena, to the program today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. (laughs) I am really happy to be speaking with you. I recently heard you present at a Native Plant Society meeting in my region and was just so excited and proud and energized by uh, what you have spent probably your whole life in many ways, but certainly these last almost 20 years bringing to fruition and that we will hear more about today. So, you know, I'd love to have you start, Lorena, with if you had a mission statement for your own personal gardening or cultivation practice in your life, whatever that means to you, What would that mission statement be, and what does that cultivation look like? Oh, oh, my mission statement would be, you know, to to work on bringing the balance back to the land, that balance between the plants and the animals and the people in the land. You know, um, it has gotten out of balance, and more recently, the last, Oh, 30, 40 years, it's really gotten out of balance. And so I think my mission in life is to try to help to bring that balance back and educate, you know, people how to take care of the land. And, you know, then it takes care of you. When I ask you, you know, if you are a gardener or what that kind of plant-driven cultivation looks like in your life what what is that for you um you know I've been a gardener over the years when my children were young we would have a vegetable garden and Mm -hmm. and but I'm a basket weaver also and Mm -hmm. about 30 years ago when I learned how to make the baskets from one of our basket basket weavers um, before she passed away she taught me um, she also taught me how you have to take care of the plants, uh, what needs to be done so that you always have those plants and that they're a good quality of plant and and the quantity too, you know, mm-hmm. how to take care of them mm-hmm. so that you have those plants for making your baskets. Right. You know, when I hear that, to me, that is a form of gardening. If I say that gardening is a relationship between a human cultivating a plant for whatever purpose, it might be the flowers, it might be the seeds, it might be food, it might be a tree, but the way you cultivate plants for your basketry and then that full circle of you tending the plant, harvesting the plant, creating a basket, that to me seems like a very clear form of gardening. Is that, would would you agree with that? I agree, yes. You know, it's that interaction you have with the plants, you know, when, mm-hmm. whether you're, you're planting them or harvesting them or using them to make something, um, you have that uh, relationship with the plant. So, Take us back a little, Lorena. Where and when were you born and h- how were you raised? And, you know, who were the, the people and places and plants that would have led you to be a person who would take up this passionate, like, warrior kind of work? Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I was born 75 years ago this year here in Greenville, which is in northeastern um, California in Plumas County. It's a rural um, mountain area in the northern Sierra Nevadas, right before the Cascades, uh, part of our traditional land takes in Mount Lassen, you know, the uh, start of the Cascades. So we're right at the northern end of the Sierra Nevada mountains. And as I said, it's a rural area. Our people have been here, you know, for thousands of years, taking care of the land. Uh, when the first explorers came into the area, they talked about how our forests were so open and park-like and they could ride their horses three abreast going through the forest. And they weren't that way naturally. They were that way because our people took care of them. We lived out all over the land. Um, 1800, we had about 20,000 mountain Maidu in our traditional territory. And in Plumas County, there's about 20,000 population now. And so about the same amount of people living on the land, but we didn't live in the towns that cities that people live in now. We lived out all over the land and took care of it because um, our forests weren't park-like naturally. It was, they were that way because we took care of them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think that it's part of our our heritage and our nature, you know, to take care of these lands, to steward them and, and be their caretakers. Mm -hmm. um, and your parents, uh, t tell me about, you know, how this, this ethos was cultivated in you as a girl um, okay. growing up and, and how you came to be in relationship, not only with plants, but with your indigenous principles and culture. Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, when I was a kid, I lived on a, a small ranch in our valley, Indian Valley here where I live. And I think, you know, we, I just learned traditionally, you know, every fall and spring, you know, we would burn. I had a great, great grandfather that was a burner, you know, that would go out through the forest burning because burning is a part of our, our TEK, our traditional ecological knowledge. You know, it was this part of when I was growing up that we would burn every year to keep our land clean. And that's why the forests nowadays, we have these large wildfires is because they've gotten too thick because the forests haven't been kept clean for um, decades now. Um, instead of letting wildfires burn and burn what needed to be burned, the wildfires have been uh, suppressed and put out. So we have had a buildup with fuels in our forests. And our traditional land is mainly timberland. It's mainly trees with high mountain meadows and valleys. And so, you know, burning is a big part of our traditional way to take care of the land. And I grew up with that. Um, my grandmother always had plants, always had gardens, you know, always was taking care of plants. So we use our plants for our medicine. We use them for food. We still gather, you know, a lot of acorns every year to use for food and uh, plants for teas, plants for making policies or medicine. And so we I still do that, you know, because I grew up doing that. Mm -hmm. And so this, the grandfather who was a burner, was this your paternal or your maternal grandfather? It was maternal. Maternal. And and did you have uh, the same sort of strength of indigenous connection on both sides of your family? Were they both mountain Maidu? No. Um, the other side of my family was non-native. Okay. So, so I'm just a half mountain Maidu, but, um, you know, I grew up, my Indian grandmother had a big influence on my life when I was growing up. And after my grandfather passed away, she had lived with our family, mm. which is an unusual to have, two, you know, at least three generations living together in a family. Mm -hmm. um, 
yes, that now I have a son and grandson that I live with, you know, that, and my grandson learns from me, you know, he, he's learning just like I did. Yeah. And so the traditional mountain Maidu land, what would be the basic para- like parameters of that, Lorena? You say that it's, you know, it's a lot of woodland in these higher elevations. Like, yeah. give me the, the parameters again. And I know you mentioned um, Lassen Peak, but maybe yeah. you would also share your name, the traditional name for it. Okay. Uh, that is the uh, um, Yamani Koyum. Uh, it's Lassen. That's the snow mountain. Mm-hmm. Yamani is mountain, mountain I do. And it's on our western edge of our territory. The southern edge goes down the Feather River Canyon towards Orville. Um, the eastern part of the mountain Maidu territory is Sierra Valley that is over uh, towards the Nevada border. Um, and northern part is Honey Lake Valley, um, Eagle Lake. Um, is on the northern part of our territory. And so, you know, it takes in most of Plumas County, uh, parts of um, Lassen, uh, Shasta County, uh, Sierra County, uh, but mainly, you know, that area, the northern mountains. Um, the Maidu are a large tribe. This the Maidu, they go clear to Sacramento from Honey Lake Valley to Sacramento, but they're divided up into three different divisions, you know, the Mountain Maidu and then your Foothill Maidu that are around Chico Orville area that are the Concal. And then this uh, Valley Maidu that are around Grass Valley, Auburn, in the Sacramento area, uh, they're, they're, they're Neeson and uh, Maidu. We have those divisions. Our language, you know, our language is similar for all of us. We can understand each other, uh, but there's little variances between us in the languages. Mm-hmm. Are there different names for the language, or is it all called Maidu, and then the each language is like a dialect? Yeah, it's just all Maidu. Yeah, you know, they'll say Mountain Maidu, Valley Maidu, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but uh, it's all Maidu. It, but it, we don't say things different, you know, like when we greet somebody, we say a sausica. Um, my uncle over the other another valley would say his sasakati, you know, and and they would say his down the other area. So, you know, but we understand what we're <laughs> saying, you know. Yeah. And, and just because we're there, uh, how, what is the, the sort of, health and vibrancy of the Maidu language at this, at this point? Um, we do have speakers of the language. Um, we're losing a lot of our elders that were real fluent in the language, mm-hmm. but it, they, enough of them taught the younger ones, you know, that we have younger guys in their thirties, uh, early forties that are teaching the language now. Um, to our kids, you know, we have kids that are learning to talk, uh, my do. And so, um, we have a, an Indian education center here in Greenville, um, the roundhouse council, and they have my do language classes there for the kids involved with the program. Mm-hmm. This territory you just described for listeners who might not have any you know, real understanding mm-hmm. of Northern California, um, you already, you know, indicated that it's a heavily forested part of Northern California. Right. We have a lot of high elevation and therefore snowfall and precipitation yeah. in these, uh, at least in the winter and the rainy months in this part of the world. Lassen Peak, of course, is one of our our largest volcanic mountains and is kind of a a younger sister, as it were, to what was an ancient volcano right there. Uh, Mount Yana is how I know it. Um, And so uh, these forests would be really kind of characterized by 
some strong, healthy rivers, a lot of uh, very intricate watersheds. Um, And what would be the primary trees that characterize these forests Uh, in your experience, Lorena? uh, Mostly conifers, you know, the pine trees, you know, yellow pine, Douglas fir, um, white fir, uh, cedar, a lot of pine trees. Yeah, ponderosas. You know, it's mainly a conifer. Yeah. And, you know, where the headlock waters of the Feather River, our territory is actually the headwaters, so these mountain meadows and stuff are here, and streams all flow downhill into the Feather River and on down through Oroville and on through into the Sacramento River. Mm-hmm. And end up in the Delta. <laughs> yeah. But we, we have a lot of um, hydro projects, you know, lakes in our area. There's eight different lakes where there's dams and power plants. It's the PG&E stairway of power mm. up our Feather River Canyon. There's several dams yeah. in our area. And so, you know, we furnish a good percentage of the water for California out of our watershed. And yep. so it's important to take care of our water and our land, you know. Yeah, because, of course, you know, these these ecosystems that you've just described, you know, mountain meadows and riparian corridors and big, healthy coniferous forests, uh, you know, which, of, of course, would have some deciduous trees like the alders and the willow and the um, yeah, uh, your quake and aspen and stuff. Yep, and, you know. um, and black oak and... And cottonwoods. Cottonwoods and big leaf maples, right? Right, yes. Yeah. You know, these are some of our... These are some really, really plant-rich, biodiverse environments. Wouldn't you say that was a fair description? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, not that any one ecosystem is better than the other, but this is a, a very rich and, and in some cases, you know, um, not yet overly developed by human residential development at any rate. Right. Right. Like I said, we're very rural with a small population. Mm -hmm. so. So you grew up there and you had, uh, how many siblings did you have? I had two younger brothers. Neither one's living now, but I had two younger brothers growing up, and I was the only girl, <laughs> the oldest. I was the oldest, so right. yeah. And um, lots of cousins. You know, my dad. There were ten kids in my dad's family, and I had lots of cousins around, and yeah. and still do. <laughs> yeah. Take us to to that next phase of your life, become but before you really take this work up as you know actively as you yeah. have right now. Yeah, well, for twenty years I moved away and lived in Nevada, around the Reno Valley area, and I went to high school and college in Reno, graduated from Reno High, and then went on to. University of Nevada, Reno, to UNR. Um, got married. I've got four adult children now. Um, the oldest is actually 52, and the youngest, 42. <laughs> and I've got 14 grandchildren. Mm. So no great-grandchildren. I've got kids. Um, three of my grandkids graduated from college within this last year. So wow. they're, some of them are getting older. Uh, the youngest ones are four, five years old, you know, yeah. so they're spread out in age, but I enjoy, you know, being able to teach them things. I feel like at my age that I'm at that age that I should be passing on stuff and teaching. Yeah. And, and that's what I do a lot of with the Maidu Summit as part of, part of that group. I'm on a committee. It's called the TEK committee, and it has elders on it. And that's what they do is make sure that the younger ones learn. 
Take us back to the point at which you decide to return home from Nevada. Yeah, I returned back to Plumas County when my daughter was a baby. Um, Reno was growing so much. It was getting that big city feel. It was hard to get housing. They were in a housing crunch at the time. And I just decided we wanted to move back to the mountains. My kids were starting school. I wanted them to go to the schools I went to when I was young here in Greenville. So we returned to Plumas County and I started working for Plumas County Indians, which was a, a prerequisite to the Roundhouse Council. They were doing the Indian Education Center at that time. I had gone through school, taken business, and so I went to work as a bookkeeper. And for the next 30 years, I worked as a bookkeeper for Native nonprofits. I helped start some nonprofits in the area, Roundhouse Council being one of them, Mountain Circle Foster Family Agency, I helped incorporate. Uh, the Maidu Summit, the Maidu Culture and Development Group are all nonprofits. And I helped with the paperwork and the budgeting and the set up the accounting systems for them. And so I spent 30 years working for the native nonprofits. I went to work for the Greenville Rancheria, our local rancheria here in Greenville. Um, had been terminated in the 1950s, late 1950s. Um, they went through a court case and were on terminated. So I helped with the reorganization of getting them going again as a rancheria. So ended up at the end of my working career, working for the Maidu Culture and Development Group as their coordinator. And that's how I really got involved with the caretaking of the land. In 1998, the MCDG was awarded by Congress a pilot stewardship project. It was called the Maidu Stewardship Project. It was one of 23 nationwide awarded and the only one to an Indian group. Where us being federally unrecognized group, uh, being a nonprofit, not a tribe, it was real unique that we got that project. And we were had put in that we wanted to take care of 2,100 acres of land using the TEK, the traditional methods to take care of the land. And what we wanted to do out of the project was to validate TEK as a way to take care of the land to take care of our plant, our animals, and everything on the land. So I got involved then, you know, with the caretaking. <laughs> yeah. So t remind me again the year this award was given, Lorena? It, it was in 1998. But it took four years for the Forest Service because the project was on all Forest Service land. There was mm -hmm. 1,500 acres and. The Lassen National, oh no, 600 acres on the Lassen National Forest and 1,500 acres on the Plumas National Forest. Um, the 1,500 acres was right uh, north of Greenville. Um, the 600 acres were around one of our sacred lakes on the top of Keddie Ridge. Um, and it took the Forest Services, the two different branches, four years to pull themselves years. together to get yeah. the land into your hands and care. Right. Well, it took four years. They had to do all the NEPA work on it. They set up an enterprise team uh, that did a landscape uh, assessment and all the NEPA work on the full 2,100 acres. I think it was a cost of $354,000 to mm do the, all the work that needed to be done. Um, when you that, say NEPA work, what does that mean? It's the National Environmental Protection Act. Uh, the work that's required to 
any impact. They do surveys of all the animals, all the mm-hmm. plants, uh, the water, everything on the land, you know, to see if there's any endangered and uh, species, any um, any how the land could be impacted by the projects. Right. Okay. And any projects on federal land require NEPA. Uh, in California, private lands require CEQA mm-hmm. surveys, but it on the federal lands and this was forest service land it requires a NEPA and so in 2004 we were able to sign a 10-year stewardship contract with the Plumas National Forest on the 1500 acres Um, and so we worked on that land for 10 years and and it was land that was real impacted. You know, it had a state highway through it, a railroad, um, other roads. It had a, a campground, a gun shooting range, a mm. dump transfer site. It had a lot of OHV damage on it because it was right next to the highway. Um, it had had a fire through the area in the 1950s. Um, it had been logged after that. And so the Forest Service, you know, when we chose that land, said, why do you want it? And we told them because it's been so damaged. You know, we want to be able to show how it can be brought back. This is Cultivating Place, and we're speaking today with Lorena Gorbett, a Mountain Maidu elder in northeastern California. She's sharing more about the balanced systems thinking of the traditional ecological knowledge of the Maidu culture and her efforts over the past 20 years to help coordinate land back under the care of the Maidu. We'll be right back for more with Lorena. Stay with us. Balance. Hey, it's Jennifer. Balance. That's the word I'm thinking about this week. I am moved by this personal mission statement of Lorena for her own cultivating practices. And the minute she said it, I made a mental note to include the word itself in my own mission with my garden. I think the goal of balance is already there in my cultivation, but to articulate it specifically seems like much clearer manifestation work. Like discipline, the root of which is not punishment, but discipleship and the art and practice of learning and teaching and following over time, the idea of balance is not a set point, right? It's a dynamic process always ebbing and flowing, waxing and waning, like the sun and the moon and the seasons, like our very own internal rhythms. It's process. And so I invite us all as gardeners this week to consider this act of balance in our garden lives. Where could you use more balance? Physically, mentally, emotionally, communally, financially. Are there ways that your garden practice can actually help in these arenas? Because I'm pretty sure our gardens can help us with all of this in all of these arenas if we look to them and lean into them and listen to them. And together with them, we balance better. This really rings true to me. I hope it does for you too. And if it does ring true for you in this time and season, I'd love to hear any anecdotes or insights you'd like to share about this idea, about how our gardens give us greater possibility for better balance. If you'd like to share, shoot me an email, cultivatingplace at gmail.com. And happy, healthy balancing act to us all in this season, in these places, in this time. As we come back, Lorena shares with us how her group organized and restored ecosystems on their first restoration parcel. 
on that 1500 acres, we divided it up. You know, we had an oak savanna area. We had a maple management area, a willow management area, Long Wolf Creek that went through the land, bear grass management area. And those are plants that are important. You know, the bear grass and the willows and the maple we use in our basketry you know Mm -hmm. and so this area is along the campground you know and the highway where we needed to do a lot of thinning for fuel breaks and stuff and for fire protection and and the the forest you know had looked dark and dead and there was a lot of dead stuff on the ground uh around under the trees and uh very um wildfire danger and it was right next to the community of Greenville you know so it was a danger to the community by being that close and so one of the first things we did was do fuel reduction and because the forest service would not let us broadcast burn a whole lot you know they um we had to cut and pile and pile burn a okay. lot of the fuels mm-hmm. because, you know, we like to broadcast burn. That's our traditional way, uh, burn things that need to be done. But it was so thick and heavy that it was, we were unable to do that. You had to pile and burn in order before you could broadcast burn. Yeah, yeah. And that's mostly just a control mechanism, right? Like if it was so yeah. built up that to to broadcast yeah. burn, it could get out of control right. much and then build. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, and and you know to to educate about the TEK, we had to work with a, a what we called our science team, where we had Western scientists and uh, people from universities and stuff. You know, our experts on taking care of the land on the Western way, not the traditional way, but we wanted them to, we worked with them because we wanted to kind of incorporate together. Mm -hmm. Uh, And back in the um, early 2000s, we weren't as concerned about the climate change as we are now, but uh, to be able to incorporate, you know, between it, because the TEK is changing all the time as the weather changes, as circumstances change of taking care of the land. Mm-hmm. It's it's a relationship that the humans have with the plants, with the animals, with the land, you know, of, of talking to the land and listening to it and um, doing what it needs. And we were able to demonstrate that, like the, the four years it took them to do the NAPA work, in that four years, we had put people out on the land. We got people, you know, we would have gatherings. We would have a, a, a stew cook-off or a chili cook-off and have the people come out to the campground and just uh, have a gathering or, or started doing plant walks where we would take people out, showing them the different food and medicine plants and uh, tasting plants, you know, that you could eat then getting people out visiting the plants and the animals. And in that four years, we were already seeing plants come back that had not been there for 30, 40 years. Yeah. We were seeing the animals return. We had bear, mountain lion, um, coyotes, the deer, uh, the wild turkeys were all coming back onto that land that had seemed dead, you know, but it was getting green. And it was just because we had the people out there showing them that we needed it, you know, talking to the plants and gathering them and using them and showing that we needed them. Yeah. And, and it made a big difference, you know, with the plants and the animals returning, even before we did what the Forest Service called service work, you know, we went in and cut a tree <laughs> um, before we did any of that, you know, we were already being able to show with the TEK a difference on the land. Right. And so... I got real involved in taking care of the land and doing tours, you know, and doing presentations to different groups um, on our My Do Stewardship project. Yeah. 
So when you say TEK, traditional ecological knowledge, you have already, uh, you know, kind of described to us a couple of what you would see as elements of that, uh, the the overarching principles really being encapsulated in know the land, listen to the land, talk to the land. Right. Um, and, and one of the outcomes of that, uh, or one of the, I don't know, branches of that would be this land needs to be burned. It needs to be cleared and cleaned and, and lightened up. Right. And so that's one of the kind of tangible methods. Can you describe some others with some specific plants or ecosystems that would help bring this to life for listeners? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the mainly in the forest was the opening up of the canopy, you know, cutting out some of the big, we did do a timber sale and cut out a lot of the big trees. Um, to open it up so the sunlight could get through to the forest floor mm-hmm. and get those new plants. Cause everybody knows, you know, the new plants are more nutritious and better for you, for us and for the animals. Cause we were looking at, you know, not just for us, but for the animals too. And that's how we got them to return. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, cause we believe that t- you take care of the land and it takes care of you. And it's done it for thousands of years. You know, it gave us whatever we needed. But we had to put in that effort of making sure that it was there for us to use. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so some some of the so the other thing I want to clarify, when you say we we were given this stewardship and and we uh you know signed this yeah. commitment to this 10 year uh, stewardship yeah. project of these acres can you describe that we because that was not an that was not okay. an easily the, <laughs> okay the we is was a Maidu culture and development group uh, okay in, we were a nonprofit um well we still are <laughs> um a nonprofit and we had organized um through a community forum back in oh, the early 90s. Uh, we incorporated as a nonprofit in 94. Um, and it was mainly for sacred site protection. That's the one thing we can get people to work on is your sacred site protection because mm-hmm. that's important to us, you know. And, and site protection includes, you know, the sites for the plants too where we gather and and harvest plants, you know, a, an acorn gathering area or a willow area, a gathering area, bear grass area, you know, it, they're sites to us. They're important places. Yeah. And, and so that's how we started the Maidu Summit, too. It and started, so describe that process, yeah, of the, of the yeah. cultural development joining with others to create yeah. this larger yeah. organization. And, well, the part of what we did as the MCDG under this Maidu Stewardship Project was um, we wanted to incorporate uh, site protection. And so we started calling meetings of all the Mountain Maidu people in the different communities in Westwood and Susaville and uh, Greenville and um, Orville, you know, in different areas, uh, calling uh, meetings. And after 9-11, the federal government was um, coming up with this homeland security. And we thought, well, our homeland security, you know, was um, our site protection. And so we started calling our meeting summits like the government was doing on their homeland security summits. And so we ended up with the name Maidu Summit Group. And it was this all our mountain Maidu people getting together because it was the one thing we could get everybody to agree on was important was protection of our sites. You know, whether it was a village site, a burial site, a a spiritual site, a a plant gathering site, an animal gathering site, whatever it was that they were important to us. And so we started the Maidu Summit Group and And, we had, we had 11 different um, member organizations plus um, five members at large that didn't belong to any of these organizations that wanted to be members at large. And we would work by resolution. 
but we would go to meetings, you know, like with the Forest Service or BLM or government, you know, the Park Service, whatever. And they would ask us, you know, do all your mountain Maidu people agree to this? And we'd have to say, well, our organization does, but we'll have to go ask this tribe or we'll have to ask this organization or this family, you know, if they do. And um, we'd have to get back to, you know. Right. But if we if we took a resolution that was signed by the Maidu Summit group, by everybody in that group, we could go to a meeting and we could say, yes, all our mountain Maidu people agree to this. You know, this is what we want and what we need. And it gave us power. It gave us that power. This is Cultivating Place. We're speaking today with Lorena Gorbett, a Mountain Maidu elder in Northeastern California. Lorena is sharing more about the balanced systems thinking of the traditional ecological knowledge of her culture and her efforts over the past 20 years to help coordinate people and get land back under the care of the Maidu. We'll be right back for more with Lorena after a quick break. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. So spring is really coming on at this time over here in my place, garden friends. And the flowers, ah, the flowers in the garden, on the trail, in the wildlands, they are a riot of color and a glorious generosity of plenty. There is nothing the wealthiest person in the universe could offer us that outshines a big pitcher full of spring daffodils or flowering fruit tree branches overflowing these simplest of vessels. I know you agree. Spring and our planning might be heavily focused on the vegetable garden, but spring is also delirious with bloom. When it comes to our universal pull to the beauty of flowers, I turned to my friend Deborah Princing and her heartfelt work at the Slow Flowers Society and the Slow Flowers Podcast. It is a colorful, practical boost year-round. If you need a little floral pick-me-up to your podcast library right about now, here's more from Deborah and the Slow Flowers team. I hope you give it a listen. The mission of the Slow Flowers movement is to inspire the floral industry and its consumers to embrace local, seasonal, and sustainable flowers. Storytelling is our ritual, both through the written and spoken word. I'm Deborah Prinzing, and since 2013, I've hosted the Slow Flowers podcast. It's where you'll hear my illuminating conversations with floral influencers and pioneers, real people in the Slow Flowers movement. Enjoy your weekly dose of inspiration about every facet of growing and designing with domestic and seasonal flowers. Whether you're listening in your studio or greenhouse, while weeding, sowing seeds, or arranging flowers, the Slow Flowers podcast is your essential companion. As the first ever podcast for flower farming and sustainable floral design, our program has shared hundreds of stories week in and week out over the years. Our guests are generous with their talents and knowledge, and I believe you'll gain at least one important insight, idea, or lesson each episode. You'll soon feel part of this creative community, joining together to pursue a more beautiful and sustainable floral marketplace. We are found at slowflowerssociety.com, as well as on most podcast platforms. You're invited to tune in each Wednesday to learn and listen along. Lorena Gorbett is a Mountain Maidu elder in northeastern California. As we come back, Lorena has shared how she helped coordinate a diversity of Native American Maidu groups to form the Maidu Summit Consortium. 
and how they have worked tirelessly to secure close to 3,000 acres of unused public utility land back into the care of the Maidu, as small compensation for the untold number of acres taken from them and from which they were unjustly and forcibly removed. Highlighting the social justice aspect of their work made all the difference, she says, and Lorena and the group were able to document that hydroelectric projects on the rivers in their region alone had taken over 17,000 previously designated Native American allotments. As we come back, Lorena shares more about just what was lost with this loss of land and these hydroelectric projects, which led to land back under their care. And so four dams going down the canyon that stopped our salmon, the snapping turtles, the eels, you know, not just them, but everything that went along with them, the fishing villages, the uh, songs, the ceremonies, the gathering, you know, we lost all of that. That was part of our culture we lost to these hydro projects. And so we made it into a social justice issue. And I think that's what made it unique that we got this 3,000 acres back. And we're still working on getting the last few parcels. Um, Humbug Valley was our largest parcel. It was 2,325 acres. We got the deed to that in September 2019. Wow. Uh, We want to be able to put a cultural center. We have plans for a museum, a curation center, for classrooms, for our offices, for maintenance buildings, you know, we're going to this year, we're working on right now on the final stages of getting deeds to two parcels in the wetlands and have a lot of plants. That was why we chose those parcels because of the plants on them. Uh, Three of the parcels have native cemeteries. They're still being used on them. We wanted those you know, control of our cemeteries that we're using. So you currently have the deeds or are about to get the deeds for a total of about 3,000 acres, which um, seems like far less than actual compensation for the 17,000 acres you lost, let alone everything else you have (laughs) lost. But are there other, uh, are there, do you have sort of goals for future land as well? We do, you know, our our next... uh, one we want to work on is like back in the when we did the Maidu Stewardship Project, the 600 acres in Lassen National Park around our sacred lake and top the mountain. Um, we would love to have control of that. It's forest service land and being a spiritual site, it's it's a lake where our medicine people go to get their powers. And so it's probably the most important site that we have for our Mountain Maidu people. And so um, we're starting to think of that. Under the the pilot stewardship project, uh, what we did was by resolution is have the Forest Service block off the road to that lake, uh, pull a picnic table out they had, uh, have fish and game stop planting fish in the lake from the air, trying to say you know keep it for the ceremonies that go on around that lake because people go up there do four-day fasts and and important things for our people and a lot of our Maidu people probably have never been there even because you don't go there and else you have a reason to be there when you look back at these you know 12 years uh, on which you have been actively engaged in stewarding this land and seeing plants and animals come back and seeing, you know, your, your, your community of people become re-engaged with those lands and those plants and animals, you know, would you have maybe one story of a particular plant or plant community that has really been revived under this new um, caretaking to share with okay. us? Okay, well, I, I think, you know, in Humbug Valley, that's important to us. We want to 
and humbug what future plans are for it to be our first Maidu Park. <laughs> you know, it's going to be, we call it Tasmam Koyum Maidu Cultural Park. And we want to run it like a park, but we want to use it to educate people of how to take care of the land using the TEK. You know, what we feel is is the traditional way to take care of the land, you know, showing the land respect and the honor it deserves because it gives us what we need as long as we take care of it, you know. And and so we want to get the land, as I said, back in balance, you know. And so at Humbug, I feel like, you know, we've done the most. We've had the deed to that land, that, that parcel the longest. We've had it now for over a year. And even with the the COVID virus this last year, we've been able to get out there and do stuff because it's outside and there's plenty of acreage to spread out. It's our last pristine valley. You know, PG&E had plans to flood that valley and they just never did it. Oh, thank goodness. And it's the last valley for over a hundred years. It was under the control of the power company so there was no development uh pg&e had cattle grazing on the land up until 2001 we got them to stop the cattle grazing because the cattle were going in and just eating everything down to nothing the one thing from the cattle grazing is we have a lot of invasive plants that came in with the cattle that we need to take care of out there they had cut down all the willows and the cottonwoods going along the creek through the valley. So in the last couple of years, we've been doing a lot of replanting of plants. Um, we took gathered cuttings and seeds, took them to UC Davis, uh, did propagation workshops at Davis, you know, grew the plants and then brought them back and two years ago started replanting in there even before we had the deed pg&e was letting us do planting and so you you've replanted willow and a lot of elderberry um cottonwoods uh, altars um, a lot of creekside restoration in 2013 uh pg&e did and part of the valley do a what they call a pond and plug restoration project where they went in and put in a lot of ponds and tried to get the water to go back into the traditional uh, creek bed where it had cut down banks from the cattle and stuff and where the water was not staying in the valley. It was just going right. every spring, this washed down these cut down deep banks mm-hmm. and out of the valley and not water the valley. So we replanted around a lot of those ponds, a lot of vegetation, mm-hmm. and still have plans for planting more. Yeah, We went out this last year, uh, burnt in one area, and then established a plant nursery oh. uh, because of the survival rate of some of the plants we'd planted the year before. We decided... We'd take our plants that we had raised and put them into this nursery there first, where we were next to a a spring where they could be watered. Um, They were next to the campground where we'd keep an eye on them and take care of them. And then once they got established, move them out into the valley to different areas. Mm -hmm. So we used where we had burnt, used the ash for when we planted the plants that we came in, the small plants. Mm We did what we call the plant release project where we <laughs> went out and cut down all these little conifers that were around our elderberry bushes that were hid in these small conifers around the where the conifers are starting to encroach on the valley, around the edges of the valley. And so we, we wanted to um, release them from you know, so you could get the sunlight and could grow and spread. And then we took the small conifers and stuff that we had cut down and used them for doing um, analog beaver dams in the creek. Nice. In order to rewater the metals, yeah, you know, yeah. our metals can hold as much water as a reservoir. If you, you get it, you know, and we don't have any beavers in the valley. We want to re introduce them we're hoping by doing the analog dams 
It'll bring the babies right. back. Right. They'll be invited. They'll see that they have a house yeah. and they'll say, oh, this looks like a good place to live. And yeah. yeah. And the importance of that water cycle that you are describing is something that I think is so invisible to us most of the time that we forget how important it is that that water is actually allowed to slow down and to sit and to percolate and it 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 recharges everything, right? Yeah. Yeah, it does. And it stores that water until later in the summer. You know, you right. don't lose it in the spring and the spring runoff when this runs down to the ocean. The metals will store that water until later in the year when you need it more down below and then let it out. Yeah. So you can get as much storage in a metal as you can behind a dam. And uh-huh. I think people are starting to realize that now, you know, that yeah. it's important to restore some of these upper watershed metals and creeks. We had a lightning strike out in the middle of the meadow that burnt 17 acres this last year. And that 17 acres, before the Forest Service helicopter showed up and put it out, um, you know, in that 17 acres, we've got a lot of nice plants coming up now. It's nice I and bet, free. Yeah. It's <laughs> going up. So um, it shows how the fire helps, you know, in regenerating mm-hmm. the plants. And not all fire is bad. You know, not all wildfires need to be put out. Because we had guys there working at the campground when that strike happened, and they went over and built a line between the fire and the trees at the edge of the meadow. And we're kind of just watching it burn, and then Forest Service showed up and put the fire out. (laughs) Um, Mm. We'd like to do, you know, some more burning in the meadow, because you could see from that how it helped, especially with the invasive plants. You know, if you if you had advice for other people trying to coordinate efforts like this for the cultural and environmental benefit of their regions, what would those be, Lorena? You know, I think it's just to get out on the land and listen to it, you know, see what it needs and just take care of what it needs, you know, listen to what it needs and and then do it. You know, and that's what we're trying to do. And we want to be able to educate people how to do that. You know, we want to bring in groups and people and show them what we're doing out there and tell them why we're doing it, you know, and and try to get that balance, get that human element back on the land and get that balance back, you know, between us and the animals and the plants and everything on the land. I always tell people, you know, well, the, all of them are relations, all the animals, the plants, the trees, the fish, the birds, you know, they're all our relations. And we just take care of them the way we take care of our family members. And then in turn, they take care of us. So, Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. I will have all the links to the work of the Maidu Summit Consortium uh, in the episode notes for this episode uh, so that people can find you and follow you and support your work and learn, learn from the work that you have, you are doing and you have accomplished. Okay. Thank you. Lorena Gorbett is an elder of the Mountain Maidu Native American tribe here in Northern California. She works with the Maidu Cultural Development Group. She is founding member and leading voice in the Maidu Summit Consortium, an endeavor in interior Northern California to return traditional lands to the care of their traditional peoples. Cultivating places produced from a base on ancestral and present homelands of the valley portions of the Machukta Maidu. And I I am so grateful to be in conversation with Lorena about land back under the care of the Maidu and their traditional ecological knowledge of this place. For a beginning list of Native-led Northern Californian efforts toward land sovereignty and balance you can learn more from and support with hours or dollars, make sure to see this week's show notes under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com. Join us again next week when we're joined by another gardening endeavor working toward a greater balance with the help of our gardens as part and parcel of that effort. 
Edwina von Gall is a landscape designer in the Northeast and is founder of the Perfect Earth Project. She's recently teamed up with the wildlife garden advocate Doug Tallamy to create an initiative known as Two Thirds for the Birds. Join us next week for more. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, and the podcast and its outreach is listener-supported over at cultivatingplace.com. As we head towards the vernal equinox and the end of the first quarter of 2021, please consider making a donation in support of the work you value here at Cultivating Place. A one-time or recurring monthly donation goes a long way to make this work engaging and empowering gardeners around the world possible and sustainable. To make your donation, follow the support button at the top right-hand corner of any page at cultivatingplace.com. Whether it's $10 or $110, your support helps. Thank you in advance. Our producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.